0: the country of Indonesia do they like me in Indonesia 100% confident Indonesia will prevail
1: Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. This is your host, Charlotte Tiadi. I'm an assistant professor of humanities at Singapore Management University in Singapore. Today, we're going to be talking about Chinese traditional performance arts in Indonesia, a topic that not a lot of us know very much about. When we're talking about examples of performance arts from Indonesia, we'd probably think about some of the more well-known examples, such as the Wayang Shadow Puppet performances, most commonly found in Central Java, or the gamelan music ensemble, or the dynamic legong dance from Bali. Those of us with more knowledge about traditional arts may know a thing or two about dances and musical forms from Sumatra or Eastern Indonesia. However, not even experts with extensive knowledge of Indonesian arts would know very much about the many varieties of Chinese traditional arts that originate from different ethnic Chinese communities across the archipelago. From Wayang Potehi, glove puppets of Chinese origin in East Java, to Gambang Kromong Orchestra from the outskirts of modern-day Jakarta, Chinese-Indonesian performance arts are a reflection of the diverse histories and hybrid cultures of the ethnic Chinese. Yet very little is known about them, not least because of the legacy of assimilation under the New Order, when public displays of Chinese culture were banned. In the post-Suarto era, however, Chinese-Indonesian performance arts have come out of the shadows. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Josh Stenberg about Chinese-Indonesian performance arts and how their histories represent the strategies of Chinese minority self-representation over time. We also talk about the importance of preserving Chinese performance arts as part of Indonesia's rich cultural heritage. Dr. Josh Stenberg is a senior lecturer in Chinese Studies at the University of Sydney. Josh obtained his Ph.D. in Chinese theatre from Nanjing University in China. He was a Fulbright Taiwan Fellow and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow in Theatre and Film before joining the University of Sydney. Josh researches theatre and the performance of Chinese communities around the world, and his first book, Minority Stages, Sino-Indonesian Performances and Public Display, was published by University of Hawaii Press in August 2019. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Indonesia. My pleasure. Great. and uh, I know you're in Vancouver right now, so thanks for taking the time to talk to me so early in the morning. And I'm going to start you off by talking a little bit more broadly, actually, about your body of research and the topic of our conversation today, which is about Chinese-Indonesian performance arts in Indonesia. Most of our listeners aren't really familiar with this topic. So can you tell us a little bit more about the history as well as the different varieties of Chinese cultural performances that you've encountered during your time in Indonesia?
0: Ah, uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think that reaction that you know even people who know a lot about Chinese Indonesians or who in who are in communities, you know, who are themselves Chinese Indonesians, don't know a lot about performance. That's very that's something I I encountered a lot uh, during fieldwork. So. Uh, I think that speaks to just how how regional it is and how sort of patchy um, uh, our understanding of it has been. And that's, um, you know, there's historical reasons for that. Uh, also something that happened as I was doing this research was uh, I began to understand better just how much this is part of a larger regional history. So um, as really often is the case, you know, I, I narrowed down somewhat artificially to the question of uh, Chinese in Indonesia when, you know, of course, what's going on in Chinese performance in a place like Medan is really closely connected to uh, that of Penang. Um, But even in other respects, you know, we find these uh, historical and contemporary networks that go all the way from Fujian, through Taiwan, through Philippines, through Indonesia, all the way over to Yangon, you know, to to Myanmar. So a lot of my other research is either on those regional networks or on different Sino Southeast Asian sites. Um, But to to go to the question of genre, you know, what are the cultural performances uh, of Chinese Indonesians? Um, There's a substantial history of of what people call Chinese opera, usually in you know, often we use the term "shichu," the the Mandarin term, um, as well. Uh, historically, of course, it was in Indonesia called things like "Wayang China," "Wayang Um, but now you also see things like "Opera China," "Opera China," etc., etc., "Opera Hokkien. Um, That's something we find records of uh, from the 17th century, which are among then the oldest records of Chinese opera period. Wow. Uh, yeah, also in Manila, also even earlier in Manila, but the ones from I think the earliest one in um, in Java is 1603.
1: So uh, from the 17th century, that's 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 very very early. Um, so do we know about, you know, who were the bringers of these uh, forms of Chinese opera, where in China they came from and and, you know, whether in those early days we see evidence, for instance, of hybridization with um, local cultures, wherever the Chinese commun- um, the Chinese migrants ended up settling.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, as you can imagine, one of the problems with this is that as with uh, performance um, genres, generally the people actually performing it don't write a lot about it. And the people who might be in administrative positions don't know a lot about it. And so they might see it and then we get, you know, these vague accounts of things going on. The one from the early 17th century is pretty good. Um, it's a, a British account, actually, um, by Edmund Scott. Um, and that one gives us the, you know, I think it, it, it gives us the place, which is uh, Banten. Um, and it uh, it it tells us that it was used for ritual purposes. Um, we know from you know, the, the rest of the history of uh, seafaring in that period that it's almost certainly um, Hokkien, so you know, from, from Fujian going to, to, to Java. And according to that account, um, it's, it's linked to either the date that the ships are leaving um, the port in China um, or their arrival uh, on Java. That fits, of course, Mazu um, is a, a really central uh, deity, um, uh, who's um, responsible uh, for the safety of uh, Chinese seafarers in the, in the whole, you know, s- s- southern itinerary. Um, and we would expect ritual associated with her. And uh, a lot of Hokkien cultures um, will have either uh, required um, or voluntary uh, theater associated with ritual. You know, it, the, the deities in the Hokkien world um, often want to see theater and that can, well, often want to see a show and that can work itself out. You can, you know, you can make divination um, and then you'll know uh, whether th- what they want to see this time is the puppets and what what particular puppet show it might be. Um, or in some cases in, in Sumatra, for instance, the the deities sometimes choose um, karaoke instead. Um, and that's also a, a show you know with a with a big sort of festival associated with it for the deity's birthday. So it's not um, in the larger context of um, why theater exists in Hokkien societies, um, that connection to both ritual and, um, the safety of commercial seafarers is something we would expect, and which we find, you know, as I say, the 17th century one, 1603, I think it is, is exciting because of how early it is. But, but um, a lot of the records of uh, often Europeans um, of, of theater um, on Java will um, uh, be uh, connected uh, in those ways.
1: That's that's really interesting. So, um, how important, you know, as um more and more Chinese uh, settlers uh, settled uh, in various parts of uh, the Indonesian archipelago throughout the colonial period and all that. Um, How important were these performances to the maintenance of the communities? Um, And I was wondering whether you can speak to us a little bit about how uh, these forms of cultural performances evolved in, in ways that are quite specific to Chinese and Indonesian communities?
0: Whenever people, whenever, especially 20th century intellectuals uh, write about theater, which is when we get sort of a larger um, body of commentary on theater as a phenomenon, then they'll highlight the importance of theater for transmitting the stories that are important for the um, disseminating Chinese morality in the community, for instance, or for implicitly or explicitly for Um, retaining a sense of Chinese identity. Especially when when people say things like this in China, they tend to mean for those who can't read. And when they say that in diaspora, and specifically in the Indies, they often mean for those who no longer, for those who can't read or write Chinese, or maybe even for those um, who don't speak any Chinese language, um, but can still be, uh, uh, you know, can still receive um, lessons of Chinese ethics through narrative right. um, by performance in uh, in another language, often Malay, or sometimes we see you know sometimes it's evidently in Javanese or Balinese. Um, at the same time, there's a lot there's a lot of evidence showing that uh, at least in the nineteenth century, when we start to have more you know documents, there's a lot of evidence that the audiences were mixed. And that the performance contexts were mixed. So clearly, lots of people who weren't Chinese, judging by newspaper reports, for instance, both you know the local Dutch colonial population and you know inlander, right? Pre-bumi populations are going to see Chinese theater um, in Sumatra, in Borneo, and in Java. It's you know as always with this kind of research, uh, the documentation is patchy, but. It seems like we have good reason to believe that every Chinese community um, in the Indies of any size uh, was performing some type of Chinese theater, whether opera um, or puppetry, um, until uh, until at least the early 20th century. Um, and that sometimes indeed it, it turns into sometimes we have records of Chinese narratives being performed in Malay. Um, Sometimes we have records of them being performed by non-Chinese people. And then you have these narratives, most prominently but also which by the early 20th century are really quite prominent in a bunch of uh, Balinese and Javanese uh, genres. And where we don't expect either the audiences or the um, performers to be particularly You know, to be predominantly or to be markedly uh, Chinese, um, but where the the narrative has has entered um, uh, repertoire, and we all find that, of course, also in the in the um, commercial genres, the sort of uh, uh, hybrid. you know western eastern istanbul type type genres we also find that some of them are doing uh, chinese uh, narratives
1: why were they popular among you know for instance the pribumi population like why um you know with the abundance of local cultural forms you know what explains interest in chinese cultural forms
0: i mean it's an interesting question i looking at the accounts that we have Um, I just think that there's quite a lot of situations where those communities would have been, where the community events would have been so porous that, that it's sort of natural to expect, um, a mixed audience. Uh, A lot of, you know, you, you find, you find these accounts where there is both, uh, Wayang Kulit being performed and various, uh, you know, social dances, for instance. Um, but that, uh, Alongside that, there might be a Wayampotehi, so a, you know, Håken puppetry um, performance. It seems to have been part of a lot of sort of festivities. We find it, um, for instance, in in Dutch colonial sort of you know Saint Nicholas festivities, um, but also in sort
1: of pasar malam, a town fair kind of situation. Yeah, and
0: the way that they're written, it's not marked. It's not marked as, and you know we he how exciting there was also there were also chinese puppets they tend to appear especially the potehi especially the 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 uh, the glove puppets uh tend to appear as one of a a list of attractions at such and such a major event and as you say i think the you know there were there are and but especially were um so many different performance genres uh going on um, and that a lot of them would have been performed at, you know, at the same event, um, that the uh, integration um, of uh, certain Chinese genres into um, those events is not, not particularly surprising. It's more, I think, you know, and this, this happens to sort of write the Chinese out of uh, Indonesian performance history during the uh, Suharto era. Um, it's more that we've later... Acquired such heavier, more marked boundaries around Chinese stories and Chinese genres that makes us look back and think, "Oh, that you know how how eclectic or hybrid or cosmopolitan of them." But I think it, at the period it doesn't look particularly marked. And then you have other genres, for instance, the um, what's now called wuxinhua. That's sort of a you know a neologism, but it's the wuyang. Uh, wayang China Jawa. Right. and those are essentially, you know, wayang kulit puppets uh, performed in Javanese, but that are Chinese stories and that were made um, by a particular, you know, so sort of Sino-Javanese uh, dalang. So, though, you know, that's that's sort of an obvious case of uh, hybridity. Of, of someone familiar, both with the Javanese and the Chinese traditions, and who made, you know, Wayang Kulit productions, well, the puppets themselves, and then productions on that basis.
1: During the Suharto era, then, you know, there's a lot of assumptions, particularly among, you know, those who analyze Chinese-Indonesians and, you know, look at sort of, the landscape of identity politics under the new order, you know, and, you know, it's often assumed that, all Chinese cultural forms during this time uh, became erased or, you know, became forgotten, right? What was the reality of, you know, uh, the fates of Chinese uh, cultural performances in different parts of Indonesia that you found?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't wanna um, downplay the impact of um, the anti-Chinese legislation and atmosphere of the of the Suharto years, but it is also the case um, that, uh, you know, that state power was in many areas um, somewhat negotiable, um, and so that certain uh, performances could go on if the local arrangements could be made. Um so we find that that um doesn't really stop, for instance, um, in uh, Surabaya. Um, and that also in other parts of East Java we find in the eighties, for instance, we find reports both from anthropologists and from press um of Wyampotehi going on. I think um Wyampotehi um, is able to sustain itself in parts of Central and East Java. It also goes on in Semarang because it had because it has this ritual background, because it does have a ritual function um it is possible to highlight locally the its connection to the Klen Teng. and the the, the Teng, although you know although they are yeah the temple is you know a, a it is a religious institution and as such has some degree of insulation from the anti chinese uh, legislation and it is possible to shape uh into a principally ritual uh, genre.
1: I see. So you mean um, while the art form itself continued to exist, but perhaps during the Suharto period, the the space for it in, in terms of public display became limited somewhat.
0: It became limited, and it became limited largely to specifically cleansing, um, you know, oriented uh, activities. It may not have been, you know, literally always on teng grounds, although I think probably most of the time it was uh, during during the Suharto years. But it had to. It 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 neither had what we saw earlier, where you know, where it might appear at a Saint Nicholas fest or at a pasar malam, where it might just be a feature um, of a larger uh, festivity. I don't think that was happening um, very much or at all, and nor does it have what it is, what it has now, where patrons sort of send it about the villages and from town to town, and it might be in a church, it might even be in a peasantren, it might be in a mall or in a hotel. None of that would have would have been happening. It would have been sort of more restricted to um, to events that at least could be given a religious character. And then we find so in Palembang, for instance, Chinese opera also continues locally. Um, In in Singkawang, um, we find that their marionette theater, which I haven't mentioned yet, but there's a Hakka marionette theater um, in in Singkawang. We find, for instance, in the early 90s that it's being used for um, uh, family planning sort of uh, really? propaganda as, as <laughs> yeah. part
1: of the I, I, I remember this. And many of our listeners would remember this as well, which is part of the New Order government's Dua Anak Cukup or two is enough uh, family planning yeah. um, campaign. So it was used for that. Yeah, that's
0: actually uh, Margaret Cartomi's research, but she went there in the early nineties um, and they were using a tape, a family planning sort of you know, message. Um, to which they per- they had puppets performing. I spoke to people in Singkawang after, including performers, and they were also doing their usual ritual uh, performances uh, alongside that. But um, for the um, purposes of officialdom, um, I think they they reckoned that one way of reaching the uh, Singkawang Haka was through the marionettes. And I've I've read, I remember. That there were parts of Java where wayang kulit was used for this uh, for this purpose, so it must have been the same logic. Yeah, um, but it does incidentally show us that you know, in evident that the, the Hakka marionettes are obviously a, a Chinese uh, genre, and they were being used in the Ordebaru Bar- in, in, in Orde period for you know actually for the government purposes. But that was uh, something I think occasioned by the very particular. Uh, conditions of of Singkawang, where you have such a large uh, Hakka-speaking population. You
1: know that's really both um, you know fascinating and also encouraging to hear, because you know a lot of the assumptions in in the scholarly community is that a lot of this. Uh, cultural forms uh, either died out, or you know they, you know people just forgot about them. We we don't know very much about them, um, which which shows Indonesia is just so huge. Often, what happens in the in the regions away from the center is not very well known. Um, can I ask you, Josh, about the about the state of you know some of these um, Chinese cultural forms and performances that that you encountered? And, you know, in the post-Suharto era, of course, with the resurgence of Chinese identity politics and languages and, and social organization and all that. Did you also see a resurgence in a, a take up or at least interest towards uh, some of these traditional forms of um, performances?
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that was particularly noticeable in the case of Wayampo uh, um where certain patrons um, had come forward and really... Um, taken uh, this genre to very different um, venues, so where it had gone um, it had gone to these sort of church venues and uh, art um, exhibit kind of uh, venues. So that was really noticeable with uh, with Wampahi. I think particularly, so if you see some of the um, CDs and DVDs, um, or if you know I, as also when I was present for performances, it was really branded as, you know, 100% Indonesia cultural Like 100% Indonesia cultural 100%, form, right? Indonesia
1: 100%. Cultural
0: yeah. <laughs> With flags, right? With flags and a, uh, they, were, they had a recording of a song, um, you know, of a of a Sino-Indonesian uh, woman uh, singing, you know, although I am a daughter, you know, although I am of Chinese descent, I am a patriot, patriotic Indonesian kind of, in Indonesian, kind of uh And then of course, Potehi also has been performed in Indonesian uh, for the last sort of 40, 50 years. Um, So so I think there's really been a move to represent it as the um, uh, ethnic Chinese contribution um, to Indonesian performance culture. And to that end, it then has also been taken into like villages that don't have a lot of uh, Chinese um, presence uh you know where there's no ethnic chinese residents um and then they there's a there's kind of a fair and there might be a barong sai right there might be a lion dance um and then there's also there's there's japanese dances and then there's also a um a floor what do you call it a floor prize right like there's a, a, door a prize. one one lucky child um, will be given a tricycle, okay. you know. And then, of course, all the kids from the village are going to show up, yeah, if only to see who's going to get the tricycle.
1: <laughs> Has this been an effective strategy, Josh? Because you have seen, you know, we all have seen, uh, you know, um, Chinese um, cultural... Uh, forms um, such as, you know, like you mentioned before, Wayang Potehi, in Jakarta, you also see something similar with uh, the Gambang Kromong or the, you know, traditional Betawi sort of Chinese um, hybrid um, brass orchestra uh, being also branded as such, right? Like 100% Indonesia that the Chinese have contributed to. Uh, the richness of Indonesia's cultural diversity for centuries. Do you think this has been a narrative that has worked?
0: I think it has had some successes. I think there's in places like Singkawang, for instance, you really see the government um, picking up. N- you know, Wayang Gantung is a small example, but more, very much more noticeably, you know, Singkawang's famous Chap um lantern festival celebrations have really been um, uh, adopted. Uh, by local government, although an obviously Chinese practice, it's also obviously the kind of practice that can attract tourism. That tourism is mostly ethnic Chinese, mostly from Java, but now increasingly also Singapore and Taiwan and China, who find it exotic because it's such a different kind of Chapgome than any of the other places. Uh, uh, we find it. All, there's also been a, a a much you know more visible kind of Kirab, you know uh, culture. Um, emerging and networks and, the, and temples sort of bringing their gods out uh, onto the street. And you find in those kinds of situations, enormous amount of uh, pre-boomy viewers. Um, and then some of the sort of higher level institutions um, of uh, Indonesia, both academically um, and uh, governmentally. So the people, for instance, working in Wayang, the Wayang ency- Encyclopedia and the Wayang Museum now also acknowledge Potehi as a form of Wayang. And although wayang used to have a very sort of expansive meaning and continues to have it in Singapore and Malaysia, might even mean sort of you know actor Chinese opera. Um, in Indonesia, it it the wayang um, scholarship and institutional representations during the Suharto years completely ignored um, Chinese puppet forms, for instance. And now you're finding that they are included in in uh, Chinese ac- uh, uh, sorry in Indonesian accounts of uh, or exhibits of uh, wayang as an as an Indonesian form. so I think those are you know those are um, successes. Uh, I think the concern about whether these these sort of successes in local and cultural areas uh, can have a real impact on the broad Political narratives about Chineseness in Indonesia is a legitimate question. You know, I really admire a lot of these, sometimes very idealistic people putting their heart and soul into these performance genres for all the right reasons. But uh, I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't really, I think, stem anybody's concerns about where the broader narrative about Chineseness in Indonesia might be going.
1: I was going to ask you about that because you know after all the euphoria early uh, years of the post-Soharto era, you know, with the resurgence of Chinese identity politics and everything and, you know, since 2017 with the Hawke uh, case in Jakarta and, you know, what we've been seeing um, at least for um, a little bit of time there and in, th- in the lead up to 2019 presidential election has been an increase in xenophobia towards, um, you know, the Chinese, uh, towards China, towards anything that can be labeled as um, China in Indonesia. Are there concerns there about, um, you know, the place or the future place for um, Chinese cultural performances in Indonesia? And whether uh, you see space for uh, Chinese um, cultural expressions in uh, Indonesia and, you know, recognition of it as part of Indonesia's cultural heritage um, in the future?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think one has to be... Um... Uh, one has to have uh, leave room for optimism about the um, about the room, the space of expression. As you say, the the euphoria has sort of receded. But I think locally, as you often find, you know, artists and performance groups and religious organizations, um, while they might have concerns about where the national narrative is going, um, it doesn't stop them from from doing their performances from uh, from these. You know expressions that really do try to position the Chinese uh, genres as a contribution to Indonesia's proud uh, performance history. So, or you know, or fabric of of performance genres. I I don't I don't yet see sort of chilling um, effect from, for instance, the Ahok saga Um, on on those kinds of performances. People are are still. very much um, producing that, you know, these kinds of uh, um, overtly Sino-Indonesian types of uh, performance and genre. But of course, those communities um, are sensitive, have a you know historic memory um, of of uh, the history, you know, have a have a memory of the history of Chinese in in Indonesia, um, and and so. Um, there are certainly people in those communities who are circumspect or who are, you know, keen to tone down um, elements of uh, performance. For instance, one of the Chapkome performances that I was sort of a part of in uh, Bandung uh, in the in the year that I sort of did most of my field research, that same quite large kirab, which was a big success. And, you know, people, you know, temples came from all over Java, even a couple from Sumatra. Um, to, to celebrate Chap May there, um, that event then didn't happen the next year because it was too close to elections. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. So and actually people knew in a year in advance that next year Chap May was going to fall too close to um, uh, the elections. And right, so that it and was therefore, best, you know, best politically, to lie low. Yes,
1: yes. Politically yeah. it could be a little bit sensitive. So there's always that awareness.
0: There is, there is. So at the same time, you know, that the then mayor of Bandung appeared um, uh, in Tepkomay, and all the rhetoric is about, you know, uh, Sino Indonesian friendship and uh, harmony. Um, and then also in that particular kirab, in that sort of parade, um, there was army participation, there was scout participation, there were all these Sundanese arts. You know, you, it was really fascinating as an expression of sort of Sino Sundanese culture. Right. Um, and at the same time, everybody knew next year it wouldn't happen uh, because of the dates. The dates weren't 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 propitious.
1: That's quite representative, isn't it? Like of the negotiation to try to carve out space for this expression of identity politics, yet at the same time quite aware of you know the broader context of you know, both local and national politics and, you know, one's place as, a, as an ethnic minority within all that, isn't it? That's, that's quite nicely encapsulated in all that. So Josh, on that note, um, I think we're going to have to end our interview here because we've run out of time. Thank you very much, Josh, for joining us uh, this week on Talking Indonesia. Um, and, you know, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I hope, uh, I wish we had had more time. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Josh Stenberg, a Senior Lecturer in Chinese Studies at the University of Sydney. His first book, Minority Stages Sino-Indonesian Performance and Public Display, was published by the University of Hawaii Press in August 2019 and is now available. Talking Indonesia will return on the 11th of March. Remember that you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been Charlotte Steady for the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.